0: We come now to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, where we are studying this chapter and using it in a way to kind of survey the history of redemption as we began with the word and with creation, have uh, made it through the early patriarchs and uh, the exodus out of Egypt. We now pick up the next chapter in that story in verse 30. We read verse 30 and 31 of Hebrews 11. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Amen. It is a very little... But it is the Word of God. Let's pray that God would bless it to us. Our Father in heaven, this is your Word, and we pray that you would teach us your way. We pray that you would refresh us with a new appreciation and adoration of your saving power among the nations. You are sovereign in might and sovereign in grace. And if any have come tonight skeptical of such things or apathetic about the truth of God, uncertain of you, Without knowing Christ or without believing in his good news, we pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would use even such a little passage as this to open eyes and reveal yourself to them as the mighty Savior of all the earth to whom we now look and pray. Amen. When Moses sent the 12 spies to Canaan, they came back with an extremely discouraging report, which is, Summarized, by the way, in Deuteronomy chapter 1. The people are greater and taller than we, and the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. I have no doubt that they had seen Jericho. Jericho was a border town in the land of Canaan on the eastern side with legendary walls and fortifications, both from archaeology and ancient references. Jericho was apparently the leading city on the east side of Canaan, certainly very secure as it sat right on the border and it had a broad inner and outer wall. Well, how was Israel supposed to take this mighty fortress? I mean, think about their condition. For centuries, Israel had been a nation of slaves. Uh, For the last 40 years, they had been the weary, wandering nomads through the desert while a whole generation of men died off. Their great leader, Moses, was dead. They had no trained army. They had no military experience. They were totally devoid of artillery and siege works and the standard engines of war. (laughs) What were they supposed to do against that? When the spies returned the first time, they painted, it seemed, an accurate picture of the hopelessness of the situation, humanly speaking. They complained that these inhabitants of the land were the descendants of Anakim, giants before whom they were not going to be able to stand. We were like grasshoppers in their sight, they said very colorfully. They complained about these impregnable walls that just reached up to the sky. The situation was obviously hopeless without the eyes of faith. But God had made a covenant with Abraham, as we sang, the father over four centuries, uh, their father over four centuries earlier, uh, to whom he said, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So the Lord had promised Abraham that he would inherit that land. But Abraham couldn't have it quite yet. In fact, it was going to be 400 years. And why so long? Because he said the iniquity of the Amorites was not quite yet complete. Okay, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're a little farther along. We'll use these as illustrations to uh, retard the degeneration of the peoples of Canaan, who very much lived like that in general. But God had sworn that the, that the people of Canaan would at last reach their full iniquity, and then he would bring his people into that land and give them possession while he judged the inhabitants for their great wickedness. Well, at last, the time had come. It was not going to be, as with Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from heaven. There was another plan. There was a battle plan. And the Lord gave it to Joshua. He said, now, Joshua, what I want you to do is to take the army of Israel and all the people and go round the city. Right, Lord. Then what? Then you're... Going to keep total silence and blow the trumpets as you go. Right, Lord? Then then what? Back to the camp. All right. Then I want you to get up early the next morning and do exactly the same thing. And the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. And for the six days you do the same thing. You go around the city, the people keep dead silence, the priests blow their trees, the, the, the priests blow their trumpets back to camp. And the seventh day, you do this seven times. And the seventh time, when you blow the trumpets, I want all the people to shout, for I've given you the city. That was the battle plan. All right, Lord, those are the instructions. And you are probably thinking the same thing that Joshua and the Israelites heard, uh, the thing we're thinking when they heard. What does this ridiculous plan have to do with capturing this highly fortified fortress? What does this procession, have to do with taking a city. There was no apparent relationship between the means and the end. In fact, John Owen says this means of taking the city was so preposterous that it suited more to expose them to the scorn and contempt of their adversaries than for bringing the wall down. In other words, it seemed like God was just mocking them, not giving them the city. Why would God have his people do this day after day with no effect? What purpose could he have in this strange method of waging war? And what will be the end of these things? Well, I have a couple points for us to consider uh, from this. That number one, the battle belongs to the Lord. Number two, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And that number three, we therefore have need of endurance. But that is not the end. We will also find in this wonderful story that grace abounds to the chief of sinners. Let's have first our first lesson from the passage. The battle belongs to the Lord. As I mentioned, God had chosen this very unlikely method of overthrowing Jericho, and why? Well, I think in part to make it clear to the Canaanites and the nations of the world, but especially to God's own people, that this is His battle. In fact, you remember that as Joshua made it across To uh, survey Jericho, there he met the angel of the Lord uh, there with a sword in hand. And uh, Joshua didn't know who he was. He says, Hey, whose side are you on? He says, "Uh, Ours or theirs? He says, "Uh, Neither. I'm here as the commander of the army of Jehovah. This is my fight. This is my judgment. And the Lord was going to make sure that they knew it and that he would get all the glory for overthrowing this wicked city and the seven nations of Canaan as he brought his own people into their inheritance. Perhaps it was pretty discouraging for those six days as they kept walking and walking and walking around and there was no change. The spies were right. It still seemed like a very hopeless situation at the end of that long six-day march. But it only served to underscore this point. As they walked around the great fortress again, victory must be of the Lord. The walls didn't fall the first day, nor the second, nor the third, that Israel marched around them. They had to, the theme of Hebrews, persevere in faith. Faith that God would keep his word and do things yet unseen. It wasn't until they had journeyed around these walls 13 times that God would fulfill his word. Matthew Henry writes, he loves to do great things by small and contemptible means that his own arm may be made bare. The battle is the Lord's. And of course, once we frame it this way, we see this principle throughout the word of God. We see that God often does this, how the mighty champion of the Philistines, that giant Goliath, is going to be overcome By a boy with a sling and a stone. Or the prophet Elijah will be sustained by a handful of meal. And when the Savior comes into the world, he'll be laid in a stable's manger. His ambassadors, unlearned fishermen and publicans for the most part. He loves to do great things by small and contemptible means. Why? That his own arm may be made bare so that when he has had victory over all of his enemies and given us the land of his choosing, then we will never be, have anything to boast in ourselves, only to say that his power is made perfect in our weakness and that we are not to trust in the strength of our might or our host or our swords, for the battle is the Lord's and the Lord's alone. Many of you, likewise, have had times when you have found yourself past your strength or in a hopeless situation, humanly speaking, and have seen that it is then that the Lord delights to intervene and to give himself the glory in your life. And this is an important lesson that we must remember at all times, especially when things are going our way. Not all the battles of Canaan were going to be like this. In many cases, they were going to have to do military maneuvers and fight those good fights, but they were to remember the lesson, no matter what came, the battle belongs to the Lord. Clearly, that is important. Now, this is also done in such a way that, number two, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, as John put it. Now, God could have brought down the wall any old way, couldn't he? He, he could have said as soon as the people got near, he's going to say, now stand back, y'all, and watch this, right? Like we say down south, stand back, y'all, watch this. Uh, God would have gotten the glory in, in such a wonderful wonderful miracle as that, right? If he just brought them up, had the walls fall, there's your city, people. Why, why this? Why this uh, absurd procession day, day after day? Why, why have all the people trudge around this pretty large city uh, so many days, right? Uh, Even here in the passage, we're reminded that the the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Uh, The answer, of course, is not merely the battle is the Lord's, but the people have to learn to trust His Word. They have to learn patience and faith while God will be proven true in the end. These orders that God gave Joshua seemed not only unreasonable, but tiresome. They could not see what this marching was going to have to do with anything. They just had to obey by faith, and God wanted to increase their faith in His word. Even if you do not understand, I want you to obey me, and by obeying you will understand and this is a lesson to us, as we have so many battles around us. It is not obvious to us how these mighty strongholds of, of heathenism, of secularism, of uh, great paganism in our day are going to fall. Um, it's, it's certainly not at all obvious to us what a worship service or a prayer meeting or one person telling the good news of Jesus to another is going to, ha- is going to do in this world, um, and yet in God, God says, these are the weapons of my warfare, right? In these things, I am planning a great victory, and not just one or two, and not just here or there, but in all the nations of the earth, that praise and prayer of the people of God, he has shown from beginning to end, will rout the enemies of God, that this shout and triumph at the end is going to bring down the enemies of the people of God, and we have to learn to have confidence in God's appointed means. See, I, I don't understand what singing these, th- these songs has to do with, with the nation's walls falling down. Well, that's nice, but you don't have to understand. God will be proven true, and faith will be the victory that overcomes the world. For them and for us, faith will be the victory. 1 John 5.4 is what I'm quoting if you're wondering where that's from. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And to paraphrase carry faith will expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And this was the second great purpose in this strange method of conquest in this unlikely way. God was going to delay the victory in order to teach his people perseverance to live by faith. And he He even has them shout in victory while the walls still stand. Say, you shout in victory, and and then the walls will come down. Okay, so this is the way that faith works. Faith, the evidence, uh, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, he is teaching his people, hammering into their heads these basic lessons right at the beginning. Although we are not in the same position now, our faith is always tested we feel this great tension between what is seen and what is unseen. It seems that the people of God are not faring well against the great mighty powers of the earth so often, and yet we are reminded that Christ has already won the victory and that we are to persevere. Even if we cannot see the relationship between the means and the victory, we are to trust in the word of the Lord. Well, finally... Uh, for this part here, you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. Uh, This was designed to teach them a persevering faith. Not just that faith was the victory, but a persevering faith was the victory. When the book of Hebrews introduces this great chapter on living by faith and makes reference here to this event, he says, now you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. It's not good enough to go around once or twice or three times. No, no, no. You have to run with endurance the race that is set before you looking unto Jesus. And so, day after day, the army of Israel walks around the city enduring the mocking and jeers of the people of Jericho from upon the walls, having to keep silence. Day after day, they have to keep up the march. The seventh day, seven times, the greatest challenge comes at the end, a wearying walk around the city again and again and again. It is a lesson because this people needs to learn to persevere, to endure. And sometimes we know it's, it's, it's difficult to keep on marching, right? If, if, if there was one thing that God called us to do, like we could do it. But to have to do it every day... Every day, the same thing, day after day, and with no apparent results. That is a great spiritual challenge. We already tend to get discouraged. And like those original spies, we we do get the feeling that we're up against giants sometimes, and the longer we walk around the strongholds, the more discouraged we feel. There is always a danger of losing heart, and especially when we have to endure the mockery of the world Humanly speaking, we have exactly the same need. Perseverance when the situation seems hopeless. And this great cloud of witnesses from the victory at Jericho says, don't give up. Don't don't give up the march. Strengthen those hands that hang down, right? Those feeble knees, make straight paths for your feet. Get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. The Lord has promised that the very gates of hell would not prevail against you, his church. And if, if we endure, we will also reign with him. This written to a people that were weary and tempted to go back, oh no, you have need of endurance going forward. So often the great fortresses around us get us discouraged as we do and do and do and do again and don't see any change. We, we are not looking with the eyes of faith. And truly the walls of unbelief, superstition, and ungodliness that we see around will yield to no earthly power. God will drop those walls by weapons that he supplies and in his time. But God delights in using these contemptible means not only to make his own arm bear, not only to show that faith is what gives the victory, but also to teach his people a long obedience in the same direction. Keep on going. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep on going. I just read yesterday as a preparation for a different sermon, actually, but this interesting fact, you know, Babe Ruth was the home run king and arguably the greatest home run hitter ever. I know Barry Bonds had more eventually, but percentage-wise and things like that. I did not realize that he was also the strikeout king, that for five seasons, Babe Ruth had more strikeouts than any person in the league. All right, Uh, he also hit more home runs than anybody, but he was willing to go up there again and again and again, even if it meant failure, because he knew that he would have success. Well, that's just a silly baseball analogy. The the, the point is, we we also need to have that same perseverance. We're up there again and again and again, and that is where the faith rubber meets the world road. Something like that. And we, we, we have to continue to do what God has called us to do knowing that He has a great victory. Well, let's see. The greatest and most wonderful things the Lord does, not by the weapons that the world supplies, but in His own contemptible means, making His arm bare. Nevertheless, uh, this... Surveying the, the conquest of Jericho, there's one more very important uh, point from the second verse in our passage because the greatest and most enduring victory in Jericho wasn't in bringing down walls, but in delivering one of its residents and making this harlot, as she's called here, the mother of kings and ultimately of our Messiah. The fourth and final point that I'd like to bring to you from the passage. Grace abounds to the chief of sinners. Grace abounds to the chief of sinners. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners, that of course is the autobiography title of John Bunyan's life, as he thought about his life and the kind of man that he had been, how Ungodly he had lived, how much of a uh, cursing and foul man he had been, and all that God had forgiven him and all that he'd done for him, he decided he'd call the story of his life Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And if Rahab had written a story of her life, she might well have chosen that title first. Okay, so even in a very, very wicked society, which Canaan was, Rahab was a woman of particularly low morals. She sold her body for a living to the city people and any traveler who might come by. Nevertheless, there's clear evidence that Rahab was already under conviction before she even met those spies and sent them off in peace. I'll read to you a few of her words from the book of Joshua. She said, "'I know that Jehovah,' she uses the name of God interestingly, "'I know that Jehovah has given you the land,' that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how Jehovah dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you." Well, that was a remarkable confession. She knows that Jehovah had given them the land. The fear of Jehovah had fallen upon them all. She knew the great works that we sang about earlier, which sadly many parents do not tell their children about today. People don't sing those songs, and you know how the book of Judges begins. They, they forget those works, and then the people go, go, go down. But anyway, um, she concludes... But this is the the remarkable thing. She concludes, Jehovah, your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. He is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. She had been brought up with idols, pagan gods whose worship in Canaan I do not care to describe. But then she heard about this mighty God who had redeemed his people out of Egypt with such great and wondrous signs in Egypt. She heard of the mighty doings of the Lord, and she heard of this promise somehow that God had promised his people her land as their inheritance, and she feared the judgment of God. Of course, everyone was trembling when they heard these things, but she had the fear of the Lord that didn't drive her away she also believed the promise of God and something happened. And when it came time for her to decide, she said, I want to leave this people, this city of destruction, this wicked life. I want to be saved, literally, from this judgment and become a partaker of this inheritance with the people of God. Now, that's a brazen thing for a woman to ask like that, right? A sinful woman living in the city of destruction who knows that her judgment has, has come, it's about to fall. She knows, though, that there's no safety and security or peace in the waste that she is. And she fears the Lord, so she, she does the only rational thing to do, which is to cast herself upon mercy. Now, therefore, she says, I beg you, Swear to me by Jehovah, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Interesting thing to ask the sworn enemies of your people, right? But the men answer her, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. That was the understatement of a lifetime. For few people have been raised up from such a depth to such a height as Rahab. She began her days as a heathen Canaanite in Jericho. She she ended her days as an esteemed adopted Jewess living among God's people in the land. She began as a prostitute, trying to lure travelers into her lair on the city wall. She ended her days with a marriage to what was to become the royal family of Israel. For she married Solomon, who had children, and Solomon begot Boaz, who begot Obed by Ruth, who begat Jesse, who begat none other than King David. Quite an honor. But I hope you know that was just the beginning of honors for this woman. This was the Lord's woman, the one that he had set his heart on, the only one in this city who had the fear of the Lord. And yet what happened? If you'd like to look with me in Matthew chapter 1 where we find her name, on the very first page of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. That's what we've been reading so far about in the book of uh, Hebrews. Judah begot Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Amminadab. Minadab, begot Nash, Nashan begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, and so forth. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. This is the genealogy of our Savior, because our God is a great God, a God of forgiveness and redemption, a God who doesn't want to hide away such stories as Rahab. Oh no, I think I want her name on the very first page of Jesus' story. How about that? One man writes, of all the families that God could enter the world into, he chose this one to show that he loves sinners, that he welcomes sinners, that he's here to save sinners. He's here to enable us to be adopted by a father into a new family and leave a new legacy. Does your family include incest? Does your family include adultery? Does it include prostitution? Does it include murder? Jesus' family does. It didn't destroy him, and it doesn't need to destroy you. The Bible is honest about it, and it invites you to be honest as well so that you can see that the sins of your family, that you know that you need a Savior and be born again and be adopted into the family of God through the work of Jesus. You'll read through this genealogy and recognize that only a very few women were picked out. All very interesting choices. Only four, if I'm not mistaken, before Mary. And each one with this idea in mind that Jesus is the God of the outcast, of the sinner, of the Gentile. Such were not brought in uh, reluctantly as second-class citizens with His people. Oh, no. No. No, the very people that God delights to bring into himself, right? Tax collectors and harlots, Jesus said, are entering the kingdom ahead of you Pharisees. We have a God that delights to make his grace abound to the chief of sinners. He delights to redeem such, to own such. This is why the Lord picked Saul of Tarsus, the most rabid, anti-Christian man of his day to become his chief ambassador to the Gentiles and bring the gospel to people like us. Because he says, I I was the worst. I I was a violent man. And uh, I went from city to city, rounding up the Christians, putting them to death so that in me, Jesus might show his exceeding kindness and grace and that he might truly be an illustration of what the Lord can do. He has grace that is far greater than our sins. He takes people that are ruined and wrecked and makes them pillars in the house of our God, mothers and grandmothers, in this case, of the Messiah. He's come to seek and to save the lost. He raises the poor, for Samuel 2, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory, right? Also Psalm 113. And that's why... It's so fitting that Rahab should be on page one, one of the very few women listed, that Rahab would be the mother of Jesus. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Remember Rahab. This is a great God, people, who's not ashamed to call any last one of you his brethren, not one who comes to him, as we read, by faith by faith, by faith. Dear friends, people make a great big deal of the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, and rightly so. It's important. God is His Father. He was born of a virgin. But you see what Matthew does even earlier. He reminds us that Jesus wasn't only born of a virgin. He was born of a harlot. And he makes this a very fitting introduction to the gospel, the good news, You'll call his name Jesus, verse 21, for he shall save his people from their sins. Assuredly, he told them, tax collectors and harlots, enter the kingdom of God ahead of you. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see what an important role she plays, even if it shocks and offends us when we read the chapters about her. Matthew 9, some people in that day grumbled about Jesus. This man eats with sinners and welcomes them. Welcomes sinners? You don't know the half of it. Why don't you check out my family business? God delights to save. These are his people. God's grace abounds to the chief of sinners. We don't have an accursed religion of moralism that has in so many places in the liberal church just cut the legs out of true Christianity. It's it's false and powerless both. We have a God of great grace. Now, in conclusion, friends, I, I have had people tell me over the years, from time to time, and again, just recently, that Um, there's times when they would come or that they don't feel comfortable at Redeemer, that this is obviously a place for people who have it all together. And I, I know it only takes one comment to make people feel that way, or sometimes even less, right? And that this church is not for people who need a Savior. But it is. And the church must always be the place where the sinners can come and Welcome, find forgiveness, and be built up, become pillars in the house of our God. The churches must be a place where they can hear good news. They they can scarcely believe it is true. That is not what they expected. To hear something so sweet the sound that something other than their personal righteousness and holiness is the ground for their entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Could it be? Let it be made known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Can it be? By faith, it is true. It is very unlikely. It does not seem to be the message that will capture the world. But God will have his victory. Oh, your faith must be your victory every day. You have need of perseverance, but God knows what he's doing with such a message. He is able to draw the straightest lines with the crookedest sticks as well. Just look at what he's done with sinners like these, and imagine what he could do with you if you would simply place yourself in his hands. Come and welcome to God's great Redeemer and victor over the nations. His name is Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we are still worshiping the God and Father of Rahab, who is not ashamed either to call us brethren, still receiving sinners today. We thank you for everyone here who has been delivered from living in the city of destruction into which we were all born, and who has placed their faith in that mighty Jehovah, the God who is God in heaven above and in the earth beneath. We are thankful for the Lord Jesus whose family business continues to do its mysterious but mighty work among the nations, calling not the ones whom we might have expected, but those whom you have chosen to glorify your eternal and sovereign grace. May all those in the Lamb's book of life sing with joy and glory, with triumph in their Redeemer. We shout, knowing that the meek shall inherit.